You're listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org, or follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast. And today, my very special guest, I'm his guest, I'm in his office. Uh, We're on the second floor of the Civil War Institute, beautiful building. Uh, My guest is Peter Carmichael, who is the director of the Civil War Institute here on the beautiful campus of Gettysburg College. Uh, And we're going to talk about a few things, uh, mostly his book, The War for the Common Soldier, how men thought, fought, and survived in Civil War armies. We'll also talk about the summer conference, sure. and uh, yeah. and Peter's also uh, said he, he's going to ask me some questions. Yeah, so uh, we'll see uh, how, how well my answers are. Um, but again, thank you so Thanks. much. No, Peter. no, I'm happy to be here. Happy uh, to be here. So let's start with your book, which is a, which is a good book, a uh, very good book, um, interesting book. I think a different book uh, from a lot of books uh, that tried to get at um, what soldiers fought mm-hmm. over, um, what motivate that, mo- motivated them. Mm-hmm. I think to how I tried to understand it was you wanted us to look at the soldier as an individual mm-hmm. before a soldier. You know, in, in other words, the farmer from Monroe County or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the clerk from Indiana yeah. uh, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you get into that a little bit and get into the historiography? Sure. Yeah. So I I think you pointed to the great challenge of this book, and it is a book that's addressing a field that is very well developed. It's matured. The question of why men fought, the question of motivation, uh, that has been explored from all kinds of angles. And the result is a literature that's incredibly rich. Many of your listeners know, of course, of James McPherson's book, uh, For Cause and Comrade. He also wrote um, What They Fought For. Uh, both outstanding books. Joseph Glattar's book is really the first book to seriously take the ideas of the soldier and, and to examine them in, in, I think, with a fair degree of, 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 of scrutiny. Uh, and that book is To the Sea and Beyond, which was done before McPherson's work. So, you know, we could go on and on and on. There again, these incredible uh, pieces of scholarship that I knew that any book that I would try to do, that it would just be treading at the same the same ground. There's, I, I had to find a different angle. And so to find that different angle, instead of asking, what did these men fight for? I asked how they thought. And that question, how they thought, allowed me to get into the interior world of Civil War soldiers in a way that I think some of my predecessors weren't quite capable of doing. I, I'll just say very quickly, again, your point about trying to understand the individual uh, and all facets of that individual's life. I wanted the totality of the experience, and that required that I look at not just the, the words that that man wrote on a letter, but it also required that I look at the things that he wore, the things that he carried, that I understand that man's relationship to his family and to his household, that I also understand emotional history, and I also look at um, sensory history. So I wanted to get every dimension of that soldier's world, and I wanted to recover it. The only way to do that was to do case studies, which I did. And for some people, that's not very satisfying. They don't believe that you can tell the story of the Civil War soldier by just looking at 15 to 20 individuals. But 
those 15 to 20 individuals, not only did I do a very deep investigation of their lives, but I also brought in a cast of other characters. So uh, I don't believe there is one common soldier, and I think that my book points to that. I think it behooves us to see the range of experiences, to try to stand in the shoes of those men, to see the world as they took it in, and then to have uh, a real sensitivity to the ways, the different ways, they wrote and represented that world. I, I don't believe that Civil War letters are, are just a, a clear window into the past. I think that there are a number of lenses through which these men saw their world and then wrote about it. So not just why they fought, but how they thought. Try to get all those elements of their lives to do that in a case study approach over an extended period of time. And then finally, a greater sensitivity to how these men perceived their world and then wrote about it. Uh, I think all of that does break from the existing uh, literature that's been, that's been done. Well, I think it complicates it. And it, it doesn't necessarily, it complicates it in a good way. It doesn't dismiss, I think, some of the, uh, you know, these men fought for big ideas and they fought for union or they fought for slavery or against slavery. That's, I think, all still true in, in, in many cases. But, but, it, but it brings you into their day-to-day life and their day-to-day decisions, which the, the big word in this book is, is pragmatism. It's pragmatism, that's right. So I think your first point, though, is an important one. Ideas matter to these men a great deal. And this book was not a book that set out to refute those scholars who emphasize the power of ideology. There's no doubt about that. But I wanted to understand how these men make sense of their world on a daily basis. And what I discovered is that, and I'm certainly not the first, that the expectations that these men had when they volunteered about the nature of soldiering, uh, that, for example, that what would occur in the field, what would happen in combat, that the consequence of that would be a reflection of a higher power, In other words, Northerners and Southerners going into the Civil War, they firmly believed that there was a a purpose to human affairs that reflected their behavior. Uh, So, you know, the side that was the most virtuous, that was the bravest, that had the best generals, that that would be the side that would prevail. But as they quickly discovered that, the world during a time of war doesn't operate along those rational lines. And so there is uh, forces at work that press down on these men. And these forces at work are the forces of just having to get by. They're scraping to try to survive and to get through this thing, not just physically, but also in terms of how they are intellectually and even spiritually trying to come to terms with this. And that required that they had to make some adjustments. They had to to be flexible in thought as well as in action. And that's where pragmatism comes in, right? A word they did not use, I should add. They right, right. And, and, and you see that really well, at least I saw it really well in chapter two, um, the, the chapter about religion mm-hmm. and uh, especially cheerfulness. And yes, we'll get a little bit into right. how do these, these right. guys wrote their letters and right. Right. not just take them at their word. That's but right, sort of, that's right. Um, but how did, there's one, and, I, and his name, it might be Kiever, yeah. uh, yeah. who... who these men aren't abandoning their God or their religion, right, right. but going into the war, 
a lot of people thought that things were predetermined and it's God's will. Um, and men start to say, well, after a, a, a loss, well, let's sort of, re, re, sort of recalibrate the way that we think about this. Can you talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, of course. So I think it's Alexander Kiever. He was a soldier from North Carolina whose letters from 1864 and early 1865 survive, which is very unusual. There's the Confederate... Um, uh, correspondence in that latter stage of the war is as rare as hen's teeth, as they say. And so one, it's an unusual collection in which he wrote on a fairly consistent basis from the trenches of Petersburg to his wife about the unraveling of the army in Northern Virginia, these forces. Uh, he saw that, he welcomed it, and he saw it on a daily basis when comrades we're running toward Union lines, and they're not charging or attacking, but instead surrendering. And in fact, Confederate pickets had strict orders that they were to fire at any Confederate deserters who try to give themselves uh, to the Yankees. So he saw that day in and day out. He saw men fleeing, and he didn't know how to make sense of that, because on the one hand, he very much wanted the war to end. He was uh, not a Confederate zealot by a stretch. Uh, and yet he didn't quite know if, in fact, that sign was just that, a sign from above, or were these men just taking the initiative and, in essence, taking their lives into their own hands? And so he was puzzled, baffled, and he wrote to his wife time and time again about what to do. And on one moment, he felt that he should simply just wait it out and put his trust into God, and that hopefully he would come out of it on the right side of the side at the very end. And then there were other times, and there was often times in which um, practical matters presented themselves. So, for example, he's starving, right? He's starving, and I suspect that his clothing was not in the best of conditions. He is calculating if he can make it to the bitter end. And as he's making his calculations, and he again sees these other men fleeing, he decided that he was going to go. But then he received a box. Right? It was a box. We called it a care package. It was from his brother. It had some clothes. It had some food. He recalculated and thought, all right, I've got to figure out my odds here because he reminded his wife that if he were to desert, that he simply couldn't just go home and just sit on the front porch and call it a day that he'd have to hide out, and that that would be, of course, a life full of risk and danger. And he also told her that, you know, the army would likely come after him, and if he got caught, he could be executed. So the practicalities or the circumstances, the circumstances weigh constantly on these men. That's, of course, no great surprise. But if you want to understand these ideas, you can't extract those ideas they write about from the practical and daily reality, right? And so for Kiever... He's doing his calculations. He finally wrote to his wife. He said, you know, I'm going to accept my fate, whatever it might be. And that was his last letter. And then he did what? He deserted. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then he deserted. Right. He got right. captured. And he survived in the end. But he clearly understood that if he put his trust in God without equivocation, that that could get a man killed. He did not become godless. He didn't become an atheist. Mm -hmm. He didn't really lose his faith. He still felt that there was some presence from above, but he was certainly more confused by it. And I think that that's the important point here, right, is the, what I call metaphysical confusion. And, and that plagues men on both sides. It is hard for us to appreciate how their daily lives were lives in which not only did they not have any physical control of their bodies, they're soldiers. They're in the ranks, right? They're told what to do and when to do it. But on top of that is 
the rumor that is just infuses their daily lives. They can't trust any information. So one, they don't know where they're going, but there's all kinds of speculation as to where that might next, where that next move, might, where it might occur. And so uh, they are constantly struggling to try to bring clarity right, to their daily life. What's really happening, right? And in the most you know, basic way. And of course, when that foundation is shaky and crumbling, you can only imagine as one looks to the heavens to try to say, what in the world's happening here? Why, why, why is God allowing the Confederate Army to unravel when we know that these Union soldiers have committed all kinds of depredations against Southern civilians? You can only imagine to try to sort all that out was almost impossible and a great weight for these men to bear. Right, right. Yeah. Well, so... Kiever deserted. He, he, he walked he across he the enemy lines, he and he spends... Uh, gets, goes up to D.C., takes the oath of allegiance, and then gets a nice right, escort right, back to right. North Carolina as a U.S. citizen. And you spend a lot of time on desertion, I and um, I think do... I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but do some service to deserters, at least complicate that yeah. picture again. Right. In the past, some historians have sort of... And it's a product of the contemporary reports of who deserters were and how they were covered uh, as conscripts and, you know, people fighting for money and, right. you know, that would desert in, in a minute if it was sort of... Uh, yeah. But you complicate that. And one of the men you talk a lot about is John Futch, Futch I think his yeah, name is. Right. And um, just talk sure. about desertion, how, how it was previously covered sure. yeah. and what you brought yeah. to the table here. Well, I mean, you're spot on. I think that... The portrait of most deserters, that these were men who were not deeply political or ideological, that they are not men who had a strong sense of duty. James McPherson is particularly hard on them. He calls them shirkers and deadbeats. And, of course, that description does, I think, probably apply to a good many of them. I'm not sure, again, how that serves us if that's where the analysis ends. And so I'd rather, again, try to get the reader to stand in the shoes of the deserter. And it was possible with John Futch, F-U-T-C-H, in the 3rd North Carolina. Uh, he was a non-slaveholder. He did not own any property, in fact. And he was also illiterate, which is, again, remarkable that we have this incredible set of letters from Futch, letters that he spoke and that he spoke to comrades. Many of these comrades were barely literate themselves. But it's a remarkable set because you literally... you. You hear John Futch's words. He's speaking to this man. And John Futch, again, a soldier who came into the Army under the threat of conscription in 1862. He is a man who immediately wanted out of the Army, in part because he had left a wife and a child in a near-starving condition. Uh, but he continued to do his duty. He was sick a fair amount, but well enough to fight at Chancellorsville. Uh, and the fighting there, he never wrote about it or represented it on paper as a great Confederate victory. Uh, rather, he confided to a soldier who then, of course, wrote it down for his wife that a comrade had, not this isn't John's words, had defecated in his pants. Uh, John himself had to go to a hospital shortly after the battle. Uh, I think his nerves were frayed from what he had seen. He also spoke to a comrade that he said that he thought that everyone was going to get killed. 
And so was John Fudge, who ultimately did deserve it, was he trying to save his skin? Without a doubt. And, and what he had seen at Chancellorsville was horrifying. And of course, there weren't many Civil War soldiers that I've read whose letters don't speak uh, to how this bloodletting is, is a thing that is beyond words in terms of being able to describe it. But then John Fudge made it to here at Gettysburg. He fought in the ranks of the 3rd North Carolina with his brother Charlie. Uh, Charlie received a mortal wound, died on uh, July the 3rd. John had to bury him, was utterly devastated by that, uh, sickened by the fact that he couldn't even have a, ca a casket for mm -hmm. his brother. He, he took his brother's pistol to have a, a reminder of him. He then joined the Army of Northern Virginia, returned to Virginia uh, in the late summer, fall of 63, and then deserted at the end of August, the end of August when there are great revivals that are taking hold in the Army of Northern Virginia. Futch and 11 other men got their muskets, got cartridges, and they're all from the eastern part of North Carolina, not far from Wilmington. So this is well planned out. This isn't just something they thought about, you know, one night. They were, they were thinking long and hard with the idea, of course, that if they were as a group, that if they got into any trouble, they might have not numbers on their side, but at least a better chance of getting themselves out of a bad fix. Uh, they got uh, about two days into their journey when they uh, were intercepted by a Confederate patrol right along the James River, a Confederate patrol that was composed of North Carolinians. Appeared to an attempt to try to surrender, but a gun battle erupted, and the officer of the arresting party, a man named Richard Mallett, was shot and killed. Mm. Fudge is ultimately, and we can talk maybe a little bit about the punishment here, but I'll just say this. There are a convergence of forces that come to bear here that pushed him to that point. Uh, from the very beginning, he has got a weak attachment to the Confederate uh, government. Uh, there's no sense that he's a unionist. Uh, there's no sense that he's anti-slavery. But there's every sense that the scraping, right, of having to get by in the ranks and the impoverishment of these men on both sides, I cannot... I think, uh, exaggerate that point. On both sides, they go months and months without getting paid that's owed to them. This covenant mm -hmm. between government and the military and the soldier, it is violated with absolute impunity. John Futch is impoverished. And so that, and then losing his brother, which mm -hmm. was clearly his anchor in the ranks, and the fact that, of course, he saw that this war was a war that violated what... Christians are supposed to do. And he's got uh, a wife on the uh, yeah, back farm. In, that's yep, back in yep. that farm now so, and, and, and a child as well. Mm -hmm. So he's got that to worry about. But he also just believes that, you know, good Christians shouldn't be killing each other, right? right? right, right. Uh, so there's a, a number of factors that then I'll, there's a situation, and here's the pragmatism, right? He just didn't do it at any moment. He, in fact, did it when the Army of Northern Virginia was uh, starting to lose its discipline suffering a logistical breakdown as well. The moment had arrived, and it's within that moment that Futch and these other men, they seized that opportunity. And, of course, for them, uh, the story did not end well. But, God, there are scores of other Confederates in the wake of Gettysburg who succeeded, right, in right, making right. that desertion. Well, and then you have um, other men on the flip side who say a lot of the same things and experiencing the same things Futch is, right. the hardship, right, right. The, the, the starvation, uh, um, Charles Biddlecombe was was very interesting. He is fascinating. So Biddlecombe's from from New York, Monroe yep. County, New mm -hmm. York. That's not near, near Rochester. Rochester. That's near Rochester. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
he Bittercom comes in late 1864 to avoid the draft. Uh, he is not at all enthused about being in the ranks of the Army of the Potomac. In fact, at one point, he wrote his uh, wife a letter in December of 1863. He said, if it weren't for you and the children, he'd take a gun to his head and shoot mm-hmm. himself, right? And then spring of 64 came, and he had some comrades who tried to talk him into deserting, and he decided against it because he saw that serving in the Army would be an opportunity to prove his self-worth to his family. He wasn't well-respected by his sister and mother and father. And so that opportunity came in the Overland Campaign, and it's a remarkable transformation in which, in a sense, Biddlecombe found his warrior's voice But above all else, he secured his reputation as a man. Now, I don't want anyone to think that any Civil War soldier triumphed over combat. They did not. I don't also want people to think that they were all victims of combat. They weren't. They're conflicted. And so for someone like Biddlecombe, who came so close to deserting, but in the end, in combat, he found that he had done his duty and for that received recognition. And he was never willing to sacrifice that again, even though he detested, detested both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. He had almost nothing good to say about Abraham Lincoln. He said that he wasn't a freedom shrieker, which is an abolitionist, right? Or a union savior. There's your your hardcore Republican. He said, I'm neither of those things. But what did he do? If you can recall this, remember what he did in the fall of 1864, he voted for Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln yeah. right? Mm-hmm. There's pragmatism right, right there, right. right? Pragmatism is about how do I get through this thing and how do we get win to the war? That's right. That's pragmatism. So, and back to Futch and, and the illiterate men, yes, right. which are largely uncovered, before, you know, at least by historians. Mm-hmm. Uh, these letters exist, uh, most, some of them written by the illiterate men, which are... Right. You, yeah. Some of them are dictated to right, uh, right, right. the to comrades, like you said. What do you mean? Yeah, right. yeah. Um, so what do those letters tell us? Right. The, I mean, you talk a lot about that in the book, that yeah. these are these are sort of treasure troves. They, they absolutely are. So I'll tell your listeners a great site, uh, Private Voices. Have you ever seen it? No. Private Voices. Look it up. It's remarkable. Private Voices, Steve Berry at the University of Georgia, and two linguists whose names elude me right now. Private Voices is a collection of letters from illiterate and semi-literate Confederates, and they're all transcribed. They have a great search engine on them. They are just remarkable. And I'll say this, uh, hearing the voices of men like Futch, those voices, as you've just said, we've rarely heard them. What's so powerful is they pulled back the curtains on war because their expressions are not framed around conventional writing styles. And because they are not framed by that, because they're not beholden to those writing styles, they speak in a free-flowing way. Their language is extraordinarily graphic. Uh, it's, it's not sanitized. And, and so the result of that is a, uh, is, is a connection to the past they get you at a much more visceral level. And I'm, I'm just reminded of Wright Vinson, a soldier from Georgia, uh, 
soldier from Georgia, again, who spoke his letters, who is opening up emotionally to these comrades, who, of course, are passing these words on to his wife. This idea that these men were emotionally closed off to each other is just not the case at all. And right, Vincent, he wrote to his wife, again, the poverty of these men. I can't stress that enough, right, Vincent? Again, he didn't have a, just a nickel to his pocket, right? He didn't have even enough money to buy a piece of soap. But he said to his wife that he was as dirty as a sow. I'm as black as a sow, right? And then he said, tell my son that he has a father, but a sorry one, yeah. but a sorry one. It's just, again, the abdication of the self, right, of these men. I mean, it's heartbreaking. And then, right, Vincent, who was on the brink of deserting, his brother tried to talk him into doing it. He decided against it, contracted smallpox. So he's quarantined, and his last letter is a letter that he is dictating to uh, some kind of attendant in the hospital. And he says that he's looking at his wife's picture and that it's so lifelike that it's as if she's, she's almost speaking to him. And he was so sad that, as he said, that he, he could not even touch, could not even physically touch that letter with fear, of course, that he might contaminate his household. Uh, and he, obviously he passed from that. So uh, they, they, again, they give us this angle on the war that uh, is hard to find in other ways. And I'm not suggesting that the letters from those who are more educated, who are more politically motivated, I'm not suggesting that they're false or they're fake. There's no such thing in my mind really as a, as a false or fake war story. As there's no such thing as a true war story. Like, like I'm interested and how these individuals take in those experiences and then try to translate it to paper. And when you do that, you can start to see these cultural lenses at work. And so for a privileged, well-educated soldier, for example, David Beam of the 14th Indiana, who charged the sunken land at Antietam, his regiment suffered horrendous losses. His very best friend, a man named Porter Lundy, was killed right by his side. And you read those letters, uh, there are moments where you can since how this battle had traumatized him. And he tells us what, that he can't get the cannonading out of his head, right? And yet, and yet, he describes that attack against the sunken lane in heroic terms. Because why? Because that's actually what they did do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that is an undeniable fact, right, right? Right. And so I think you know you can find it on both sides. These men who go through this, and on the one hand, this sense of pride that they feel uh, being part of a unit that has demonstrated their manliness and have, and has sacrificed blood for the cause, right? That meant something to both sides. And again, I'm not trying to diminish that, but. Those wealthy, privileged people, they are writing along a cultural script, not because they are somehow have been forced to do this and that it's artificial. No, it means something to them, and it meant something uh, to David Beam, who spirals downward, if you recall, to the point where he had to leave the regiment after Antietam and check himself into a private home. And again, we could talk a little bit about trauma. In fact, that's the question I'm going to ask you, and I'll tell you this with about Beam. Writes to his wife. He says he can barely focus. That he looks out the window and he says, I just think about the war. Whenever I try to write, he says he can't keep his hand steady. Now, he never, ever, as most men, 
I've only found one man. And it's funny you mentioned Biddlecombe. I've only seen one soldier. This is after the book. A soldier who connected memory of battle to some kind of physical ailment. And Biddlecombe, in the Siege of Petersburg, after he had gone through the Overland campaign, he wrote to his wife and said in one sentence, whenever I think of battle, my hand starts to tremble. Most people do that. So I'll ask you, this is my question. Hmm. Do you think most of these men were, not in my book, just in general, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. were they traumatized by war? Uh, I think it's clear. And, uh, but I, I think, unfortunately, um, and you cover this in the book, uh, how the, the armies dealt with these men. And a lot of them thought they were just looking for, you know, a free pass to lay around in the hospital or maybe even go home. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I just don't think that... Um, and, and fortunately, you see it in the letters like um, uh, Futch's, I think. You see the trauma. Yeah, absolutely. But I think you, what you bring to the table is somebody like, and Beam does, but he's not as, he doesn't have that makeup. You know, he's not going to, you know, some of these soldiers aren't going to write like that. That's right. You know, which is unfortunate. Well, I think you point to something here. And again, I might even push you a little bit on this. Again, this word trauma, as we well know, is a word that not only did they not use, but they had no sense of it. And the other point that you've made, which is an important one, is that unless you're showing blood, both sides, officers all the way down to the enlistment, enlisted men, including physicians, they think you're faking it. You're a malinger right, of some right. kind. They don't imagine the invisible, and I put quotes around that, invisible injuries right, that we know that combat can inflict. And so... What I'm a little uneasy about, and I'm hoping that the book, of course, captured the complexity because it's a complex point. The idea that anyone could go through a battle unscathed is, of course, that's just nonsense. But that's stating, I think, the obvious, mm -hmm. right? We need to go deeper than that. And it seems to me that for men on both sides, they had coping mechanisms. Those coping mechanisms, mechanisms go all the way back to the culture from which they came from. I'll be more direct. Civil War Americans were wired in ways that we're not culturally wired to kill and to die. And they look to death in a very different way than we do. Sure. They look to violence and suffering in a very different way than we do. Those cultural understandings, it prepared them for what we think is, and it was, uh, this, uh, this great violent, incomprehensible maelstrom uh, and it was that it was that but they had the ability to come out on the other side and oh be badly shaken by it and to be haunted by many of the things that they saw and they did and yet and yet they could still cope they could still persevere they could still go on and as we know right now we have the highest PTSD rate that we've ever had sure yeah and we have fewer people women and men seeing actual combat than ever before I, th I think there's a cultural issue I, 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 there. there absolutely. Is a I mean, issue. I think it was impossible to measure back then. I think it's, it's something that's still very difficult to measure now, even from. And I'm not a medical right? historian right. or You're expert right. at all, but right. I think it's something that it manifests in people differently. And so, somebody you might not even be, be able to tell that they that's experienced right. trauma from the war, yeah. uh, but it certainly deserves much more attention. Yeah. Uh, we've, get, we've got some good things that are out there. Your readers might enjoy. It's an odd title, so I'm going to say it slowly. Mm -hmm. Shook Over Hell. Shook Over Hell by Eric Dean. D-E-A-N. Eric Dean. It's a junior on that. Shook 
over health compares Vietnam veterans to Civil War soldiers. The book is still in print. Uh, it's quite good. And he puts forth the argument that PTSD, one can find in the sources, he found it by looking at veterans. He uh, found the records of an asylum in Indiana. And, of course, these records are just they're chilling. They're just wow. a, a man from suffered a imprisonment at Andersonville when his daughter had to, in essence, commit him to an asylum. She wrote that whenever he met anyone, for even the first time, he would immediately start to talk to them about Andersonville. And if that individual had the time and inclination, he would then take that person behind the house where he had built a replica of the Andersonville stockade in prison. And then he would point and give people tours. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so, yes, this stuff stayed with them. There's no doubt about it. I, I read this. I wish I'd remember this guy's name. This was, man, 20 years ago or even maybe more. I lived in Richmond, Virginia, and there was a fellow there who remembered Flora Stewart, Jeb Stewart's wife. That's how old he was. He remembered her as a kid. He was a kid. He also remembered as a boy walking by the old Confederate soldiers' home in Richmond. And he said it was not uncommon to hear that night these men screaming out in their dreams. I just started to look at some stuff, and I don't know if I'll do anything with it uh, or if I can even speak with too much sort of certainty. Uh, there's a, the National Soldiers and Sailors Home in Bath, New York, in oh. western New York. Yeah. Um, and I saw, uh, looking up something else, going through some old newspapers, I saw somebody got hit by, uh, an old soldier right. got hit by a train. Train, yes. Um, yeah. And then I saw uh, another like th this is the fifteenth this year, right? Jeez. And then you then you dive into it, and there's suicide, and there's, wow. and so trying to figure out. I mean, you, you, part you, of it you. might be that it was you, you took your chance because it was it much quicker to get back to the home that right, way. But yeah. some of it was, and there were a lot of um, there was a lot of alcoholism. Yes, you know, yeah. uh, somebody has done a book that's a decent book on it, but there's there's more there just in these no, homes to sort absolutely. of dive into. Why are so many men getting hit you, by a you, train? You absolutely need to do that. You need to get all their names and look at their pension records down at the National Archives, and we'll set you up to do that. Oh, right? great! No, you yeah, really need yeah. to look into that. That's uh, fascinating. I mean, you know, I, I, I've just started with the new, and I've said there's such a there's a rich yeah. sort of you, you really, heartbreaking story here. You really here. need to yeah. do that. That's, yeah. that's an important thing. In the archives, the pension records are incredible. I mean, that's going to give you some hints about their mental state Oh, that's great. Well. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, so something that's very fascinating to me, and we saw this play out uh, at the conference this past June, right. you and your, your advisor, your former advisor, <laughs> Gary Gallagher. Gallagher yeah. And if he was involved in this book, I believe, as an editor. Yeah. Um, um, the book about, about places? Uh, no, no. Yeah, I mean, your your book. Oh, uh, this, book. This, yes. book this, this book. This book. Yeah. He was the editor. Yeah. And and uh, there there are always tensions, good tensions between yeah. the writer and yes. the, and their editor. That's right. Um, That's can right. you talk a little sure, bit about that process? Because yeah. it was so yeah. interesting. Right. I mean, he was your advisor. I'm sure you've learned a lot from him. Absolutely. But you also, I think, have a profound sort of. Uh, D disagreement in terms of how to cover history. Well, we do have differences about that, and he, of course, thinks it's because, I mean, he's like a father to me. And there's not a man right. I admire more in the world than him. He's he's been such a good he's such a good person. He does so much for his students, and he's this great historian, right? And you know, he taught me early on. You know, I want my students to form their own opinions, and we have a very different take 
on, on the past and how to approach the past. And at the most basic level, it's how we use sources. For him, uh, these sources, you stack them up, and the pile that's the highest, there's your dominant view. And it, from that, you extract those ideas. Those are the important ideas. That's really sort of the force of history. I don't think that's simplifying this approach. At least I hope I'm not doing that. I, on the other hand, see a much different take on those uh, sources. I don't see them, as I mentioned before, as a transparent window into the past. I think it's within those letters that you can, and this is where I lose him and lose maybe <laughs> some of your listeners. I think you can get, actually get underneath the words. I think you can get underneath and you can see how they think. And that, of course, makes him terribly uneasy. <laughs> and, and then for him, he wants to know what's representative. And what I say to him, that that's a pointless and fruitless, and I think even... I think it's misguided, and I've said that to him, and I think it's misguided because just what you've said about the letters from the illiterate and the semi-literate, they're almost never included in any so-called representative sample. You can't get a representative sample, so at least acknowledge that the samples for the common soldier, and that's where he and I really butted heads, right? He thought that many of the individuals that I selected, that they were not representative. He thought that the chapter on desertion didn't make a lot of sense. Not that I shouldn't cover desertion, but there was too much coverage of it. And I said to him, I gave it so much coverage because if you want to understand how the vast majority made it through day in and day out, you've got to understand the boundaries of dissent. Right? you got to get that. you got to understand that. And that's why I looked at the deserters with, uh, I think, more attention than what he was comfortable with. So in the end, the book, I think uh, he wished that it was more general and in a way that uh, I quoted from hundreds of soldiers and that I would take a letter here and a letter there. And again, I just don't think that's very good history. And he knows that and, and I will always disagree about that. I think when you do that kind of extraction from letters, it's called cherry picking and you can prove mm. whatever you want to prove. And I think that that's not what we need to do here. History should be about ambiguity at the very end. That's what's critical. Hell, we need more of that in this world yeah, today, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Too much absolutism. That's not how people see, uh, sure. navigated the, their world, and we shouldn't navigate it that way today. So I, I like the frayed edges. Yeah. I like the tensions. I think when you speak a convict, I said before, I don't see them as victors. I don't see them as victims. I see them as badly conflicted mm -hmm. and they were mm -hmm. for the most part right so i want that ambiguity i want those tensions I, we, we all have a need for for clean narratives yes, that have right. very right. simple but profound yeah. meaning that's right and yeah. uh that's, that's what we've sought in our history well for so that's so right. long yeah, that's but right. but uh these things were very complicated that's right and you're spot on that's right because what you've said is perfectly captures how I like to convey the past. But you can only imagine that if you complicate it too much, especially for someone who's just coming to it, they're going to say, what? <laughs> I'm utterly baffled. Like, is there not one generalization I can hold on to? And of course you can. And you can in my book as well. And I'd like to believe, and I think Dr. Gallagher would agree, that my book does give due and credit to all that scholarship that used a methodology of Let's look at these letters, and we'll take a line here, take a line there. And like I said, you can prove whatever you want. I mean, Biddlecom is a good example. If you were to take that December 1863 letter, when he said that he never wished he had joined the Army and that he wanted to put a gun to his head, right? If you just quoted that, that's, of course, far from the 
reality of how this man's views and actions evolved over an extended period of time. And that's at the heart of my book. I picked soldiers not because I thought they were representative, but I did make sure that I had poor guys, eh, rich guys, Mm -hmm. well-educated, not educated, east, west, black, white. I did that, right? But at the end of the day, I wanted the collections that were extraordinarily rich in terms of the content of the letters, men who were reflective and thoughtful, and those letters had to cover an extended period of time. Had to do it. I wasn't interested. Right. Uh, and that's, again, another thing that Dr. Gallagher and I were not in complete alignment. Right, about. right. right. Um, can you talk about the, uh, the wonderful Civil War uh, Institute Summer yeah, Conference. Yeah. I've been twice now. Yeah, it's awesome. Keep coming. I love yeah. it. I'll be there next year. Good, good, uh, good, good, uh, good. What, what do, what's the format, and what yeah. do we have to look forward to yeah, next year? Yeah, of course. Year? So, uh, Civil War Institute, second weekend in June, and it begins on a Friday night. Through the weekend, we have talks, an array of talks. Uh, we often have sessions that go side by side that will give you choice, and those choices go from, for example, uh, this year we have someone talking about George Gordon Mead and the uh, Pipe Creek line. Uh, we have someone else talking about a new way of looking at the 20th Main. Uh, but from there, we also have topics that are not right uh, in the center of military history mm-hmm. or tactical history as well. And so we have people that deal with the Far West and the war. We have another person who's looking at guerrilla warfare. Uh, we have uh, another individual who is... Um, Oh, on the environment, on the environmental impact of the Battle of Gettysburg. We also do uh, small group discussions. If you like to do that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you can have lunch. Have you done a dine-in before? No, I haven't. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, I have to. I know, I have to. Oh, you absolutely. Mm -hmm. The dine-in is just you get to sit and have lunch with one of our speakers. They usually have a document, and it's Mm -hmm. it's laid back. The the people at this conference, I hope you can vouch to this, Mm -hmm. right? They are nice folks. Oh, it's. I've been to other conferences, and I'm not going to mention any names. They're, they're all great, but this one is the most open. You feel the most sort of, um, no matter your level of, you know, expertise in any given subject, you, you feel welcome there. And you could, you know, somebody will pull up next to you. Uh, you've got your city on your name tag, and that's usually how most conversations start. Right. But then you go from there. Um, yeah. uh, like you said, you could stay on campus or you can get a, that's right. you could get a, a yeah. hotel or yes. Airbnb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you, uh, if you... If, if you're longing for those days of dorm living, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't imagine anyone is. Sure. Uh, but if yeah. you are, yeah. we have mm-hmm. the dorms. I mean, it's, and I'll be honest with you, it's, it's a little bit uh, under $1,000 uh, mm-hmm. for the entire week. And we also have two days, which you've not done which yet. Which I've, I've done, I've do done the weekend. Yeah, I've done, the weekend. So the, t- yeah. the past two times I've done the weekend. So we have a weekend option, yeah. and mm-hmm. then you can also do the weekend. And then the following Monday and Tuesday, we do battlefield tours. Although we do a tour on Saturday yes, night as well. Which is, so you get some Gettysburg Battlefield on yep. Saturday mm-hmm. night, which is a nice little feature mm-hmm. that we do. And then that Monday, we go off-site. We have all kinds of choices. And you look us up on the web, of course. Mm-hmm. You'll see the entire schedule. But the point is, I think what you've said, we have created a place where your interest in the war can be all over. It doesn't have to be centered on military history. But if you like it, you'll get some of that. But you'll find something here that you can connect with. And we do the Civil War era. So we do the coming of the Civil War. We've done stuff. On, we did Nat Turner's Slave Rebellion last yeah, year. That which was, was great. Fantastic yeah. talk, mm-hmm. right? And so I also appreciate that the people that have come here, that they defy that unfortunate perception that the Civil War buff just carries about drums and bugles. Right. And that's it. Right. That is just not true. 
and I think our conference attests to that and attests also to the fact that the people here, man, they're really nice. And they want to have, you know, just a nice weekend of talking about the history. And the best place you could possibly do it is right here at Gettysburg as well. Oh, and don't forget, Mr. G's Ice Cream. That's right. And it is Famous. A, it is the yeah. best ice yeah. cream, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so well, we, that's on Friday night. The that's ice on Friday night. Yeah. We cater yeah. that mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we also do something on Tuesday. We bring in a Civil War band. And we had uh, a guy who did his own uh, his own beer, made his own beer. Ah, it was fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to try to get there here the whole You absolutely need time. to do yeah. that. But yeah, yeah. we would love... We love um, the more the merrier, and for your round table, mm-hmm. they get a discount. That's right. right? I took advantage time. of that last year. Yeah, it was great. Should. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so, Peter Carmichael, thank you so much yeah. for for talking to me. Yeah. Uh, the book is "The War for the Common Soldier: How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies." It's really great. Yeah. Check it out, and please, please check out the Civil War yeah. Institute. So, if I get to come speak to your roundtable. Sure. I'd we love, love to, you. man. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. I want to see Governor K. Warren's papers up in Albany again. Oh, yeah, so we yeah. We can make it mm-hmm. a, a, do a we did a, there. We did okay. a podcast, um, uh, just a quick aside, uh, with a gentleman who wrote a book about Warren trying to regain his reputation. It's fascinating. Uh, really, really good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Sheridan did him wrong. Or yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it took him years, and it was dead by the time he got any sort of... Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a, yeah. Anyway, it's such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much, Peter. Thank you. Great. Thank you.